Let's open up our Bibles this morning and turn them to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We're reading this morning chapter 5 verse 1 through to 6 verse 2. The text is the verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And a bit of context here for scripture reading. In the first eight verses of chapter 6, you have the loosing of the first four seals, loosing of four horses and their riders of different color. And we are in that portion of the book of Revelation which concerns the loosing of the seven seals of a book of that one who sits upon the throne, which beginning in chapter 4, concluding in chapter 7. We read sacred scripture from Revelation 5, verse 1. This is God's inspired word. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, have prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book, out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power 
be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth for ever and ever. What follows is our text for the sermon this morning. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Thus far we read from God's holy inspired word. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Beloved congregation, Christ is coming. He is coming quickly. He is coming again. He is coming in judgment, final judgment. And his coming is through, not in spite of, but through all the events that are occurring in heaven and here on earth through all time, even now. And if that be the case then, beloved, are you watching? And are you waiting eagerly for His return? Or are you indifferent to His return and therefore indifferent to the very events that are happening all around you in this world? also in this nation and in the church of Jesus Christ here on earth. The Word of God is not silent, not silent at all, but rather speaks abundantly on this subject of the return of Jesus Christ and the believer's attitude he is called to have towards his coming again. Scripture in many places addresses this fact. Just three sampling, three passages of Scripture here I call your attention to. In the first place, there's the book of the first and, sec- there's the first and second Thessalonians, which sets forth the man of sin. Setting forth the man of sin, it calls attention to the return of Jesus Christ, and it does so with the urgent calling for the church to watch and to wait eagerly. For his return. A second portion of scripture that deals with this truth of the return of Jesus Christ and the signs of his coming is the Olivet Discourse, the popularly known Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, and from which you heard a sermon last Sunday evening on. There it is Christ himself who speaks to his coming again calling attention to the various signs of his return, and in there as well speaks a parable, the parable of the ten virgins, calling the church of Jesus Christ to be as wise virgins, watching, waiting for his 
return. And most intriguing of all, the Holy Spirit gives to us an entire book, this final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which records all the things that must come to pass before Christ comes again and records it in the form of visions and symbols. The passage that we read, chapter 5, and the text we are considering in chapter 6, belongs to that section of the book which records the loosing of the seven seals of a book. Loosing which signifies the execution of the sovereign God's eternal counsel and plan with the goal and purpose of causing Jesus Christ to come again. The vision that is set forth to John beginning in chapter 4, is that of a throne room and one who sits upon that throne. And before that one who sits upon the throne, there are 24 elders and four beasts. The symbolism of this vision is not difficult to explain. The 24 elders represents the church in heaven the church perfected, the church triumphant. That's easy to see from the number 24 because the Old Testament church comprised 12 tribes and the New Testament church had 12 apostles. 12 plus 12 is 24. The church triumphant in heaven and the four beasts represents God's creation. All of God's created world found all over the four corners of the earth. Both the four and twenty elders and the four beasts are before this throne of God in peace and communion with and in perfect love and worship of God. The picture in this vision sketched by the Holy Spirit and given to John is that of great hope. For it is a picture of the everlasting blessedness and glory of the church, the saints of God in heaven. That's the scene, the holy throne room of God set forth in chapter 4. And so now when chapter 5 of the book of Revelation begins, it has its eye on the one sitting on the throne. And in fact, it zooms in upon his right hand. That right hand, of course, symbolizes the absolute authority of God. And from there, it focuses on the object in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. The book. The book that is completely filled out front and back and which is sealed shut by seven seals. That book symbolizes God's eternal decree and plan, and the loosing of it, therefore, symbolizes the execution of God's grand plan. This book, beloved, is the connection between chapter 4 and chapter 5. You recall that chapter 4 had set forth the beautiful picture of the everlasting blessedness and glory of the saints in heaven. 
they are worshipping God without sin, without sorrow, without pain, without death. They are worshipping God in perfect love. But how was John on the Isle of Patmos at the time of the writing of this book? And how are we, the church here on earth, with all its tribulations and troubles and imperfections, with sorrow, pain, and death. How are we going to get from where we are here today to there? The answer lies in that book, in the loosing of the seven seals of the book. That is the way in which we are going to get from here to there. So the question naturally comes, who is worthy to take us from here to there? Who is worthy to loose the seals of this book to take us from here on earth, the church here on earth, in its lowly state, to its state in heaven? The answer set forth in Scripture, no one else except the Lamb. The Lamb who is slain from the foundation of the world, the Lamb who alone receives the praise of His universal church in chapter 5, gathered all around Him. The Lamb who is none other, the exalted Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, what follows then in chapter 6 in the book of Revelation is the opening, the loosing of the seven seals of this once sealed book, beginning with the very first seal, which is what our text concerns today and which we consider this morning under the theme, the white horse. Let me call your attention to the text this morning under that theme, the white horse. Notice with me three things. It's identity, it's victorious running, and our thankful response to it. We begin with his identity, and to, in order to identify this white horse and its rider, we need, first of all, to consider in general the four horses and riders in chapter 6. And we do so because it is obvious that the, these four seals belong together. They belong together because they all have to do with horses and riders. Well, obviously, what we have before us with regard to these horses and their riders is that they are but figures and symbols, not literal riders and literal horses with four different colors, as some take them to be, regrettably. Ever so briefly, let me say that we end up with nothing but nonsensical doctrines and myths if we were to take these horses and their riders literally. And here also, let it be said that even literal Bible interpreters, so to speak, literal people have to admit that the lamb in the vision of John is not a literal lamb. They themselves identify the lamb to be Jesus Christ, the worthy lamb of God who is alone worthy to open 
the book in this vision, a book which symbolizes God's eternal counsel and plan. So what we have here before us is divine symbolism. What then do the four horses and their riders represent? Let's begin by considering the horse. What does Scripture have to say about the symbolism and idea of the horse? We give a twofold answer. First of all, the horse is a creature that is used in war. Many passages in Scripture speak to this. Quickly now, two verses from the Word of God demonstrate this truth. Proverbs 21, verse 31, that reads, The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. And in Job chapter 39, describing the horses and its fierceness and strength as it goes to battle, also records how God asked Job this question. Hast thou given the horse strength? Strength. So that leads us to the second idea of the horse set forth in Scripture. It is a creature of strength and power used in the day of battle and war. The horse is strong and powerful. And that idea is captured by the psalmist in many places. Notably in Psalm 20, verse 7, we read, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That is to say, God's people do not find their strength and help in earthly things, however strong and powerful they are, including horses. We find our help and strength in God himself. So the horse then represents and symbolizes strength and power in war at the time of battle. So then we ask the question, what about the riders of these horses? What do we make of them? Some say that the rider is the beast, that is, an imitation of Jesus Christ. But that, you see, does not harmonize with the fact that both the horse and the rider are not struggling against each other, but are riding and working together in perfect harmony, doing the will of the Lamb. Still others say that the rider is Jesus Christ himself. But this too has its own problems. And in the first place, let me remind you that the Lamb was already identified as Jesus Christ. And in the second place, if Christ is the rider of the white horse, then who, is, who are the riders of the other three horses? So we say it is best to take the riders and the horses together as powerful forces. Powerful forces directed according to the book or scroll that has been opened by the Lamb. Powerful forces at work. Well, that being the case, what we have is this. 
Jesus Christ, the Lamb, sending out horsemen and horses to carry out the execution of God's plan in an orderly fashion. First, the white horse, and then the red horse of war and strife, and then the black horse of financial struggle between rich and poor, and then the pale horse of death. First, the white horse, then these horses. That the white horse is first is not insignificant. It tells us, beloved, that the three other horses that come after it serve the cause of the white horse. And these four horses together serve the overall cause of causing Jesus Christ to come again and come quickly. All of this is set forth in this vision in Revelation chapter 6 given to John. Jesus Christ is the one who controls the white horse and its rider and as well all the other horses so that we who are his people living here on earth have nothing to fear. He is in perfect control. He is in control of the white horse and its rider. That being the case now, digging more deeply into the text, why the color white? Why a white horse in the text? What is the significance and symbolism of the color white in scripture? The color white is the color of purity, signifying therefore spiritual purity, that is specifically the spiritual virtues of righteousness and holiness. And scripture is abundant in setting forth this explanation of the color white. Three samplings of scripture demonstrate this fact. First of all, Isaiah in Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There we have the dark colors of crimson and scarlet depicting impurity and unholiness or sin. But when God deals graciously with us through Jesus Christ, we will be pure, we will be white as wool. Similar thing is what we find in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, where Daniel writes under inspiration a different vision in connection with a different vision. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow. And the hair of his head like pure wool, the throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Flame and fire, they're speaking of the holiness of God. And last but not least, most explicit, explicitly from the book of Revelation itself, just several chapters later, in 19 verse 8, we read, 
Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And verse 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is, says John under inspiration, is the righteousness of saints. Our perfect righteousness imputed to us through faith alone. Christ's righteousness given to us. The white horse and the rider then is associated with the spiritual virtue of righteousness and holiness. It is the agent that God uses to make men dark, red, crimson, scarlet, sinful men, you and I, to make us pure, to make us white. So then, the white horse and the, gospel, and the rider stands, signifies the cleansing power of Jesus Christ through the gospel of his cross. That's what the first seal, that of the loosing of the white horse and its rider, stands for. It is the unleashing of the power of Jesus Christ, the gospel, cleansing, saving power of his cross. The white horse and its rider of the first seal are nothing less than the victorious Christ as he manifests himself and works powerfully in the midst of the world, we are told, fighting, conquering, fighting and conquering unstoppably. That's right, beloved. There is a spiritual war and battle going on. Christ, through this white horse and its rider and all its allies, are in a war and battle. We're at war. Are we conscious of that fact? We're in the midst of a battle and war a battle and war which began long, long time ago, children. Do you know when this war and battle began? It began in Genesis 3, verse 15, when God drew the line in the sand between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Camp Jesus Christ and camp devil. It's a war begun from early on and it's a war that continues and is ongoing and raging today. The horse speaks of war, so does the bow in the text. Are we mindful that we live in the midst of a war and are we mindful whose side, which side we belong to? Let's understand, beloved, that the white horse and the rider wins. Wins and is victorious because it is the ultimate power on the face of this earth. Let's be encouraged by that in the midst of this war and battle. It's the ultimate power, meaning it's more powerful than the weapons that have been left behind in Afghanistan, be they tanks, Grenade launchers, 
helicopters, or even the more, much more powerful weapons that are in the shores of our, of our land and nation. Nuclear warheads, nuclear submarines, aircraft and the like. This is the ultimate power because it is the power of God. That one who is in John's vision sitting upon the throne. And he, I submit to you, is more powerful than any weapon that is on the face of this earth now or ever will be. More powerful than all things in heaven and on earth. And that is because this power of the white horse and rider belongs to him who made the heavens and the earth, who spake and it was done, who commanded and it stood fast, this is the power of the absolute sovereign God who accomplishes His de eternal decree and will through His exalted Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And He does so always and triumphantly. Triumphantly, I say, because the victorious running of the white horse is set forth at the end of verse 2 in our text. Notice, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. That crown, beloved, speaks not to, of the king's crown, but rather the crown of a victor, a winner, the winner and victor of a race. The white horse and its rider had a crown and went forth victoriously with his victorious running. Now what does this running signify? This running of the white horse? It signifies the preaching of the gospel throughout history and as it goes forth unto the ends of the world. Here it is important to note that the Holy Spirit makes a connection to the first beast set forth in Revelation chapter 4, a beast likened to a lion in verse 7 with this white horse and the rider. How are these two beasts connected? Well, the lion, of course, rep rep reminds us of the lion of the tribe of Judah mentioned in chapter 5. Christ is the lion of Judah who seizes his prey and rests in peace. In other words, having conquered Satan and death on the cross, Christ will certainly obtain full victory for us. And how will he do that? Through the running of this horse. Through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is symbolized by the lion here. And the word of God also gives us, in many places, the idea of this being the case. One such place is Amos 3, verse 8, where we read, The lion hath roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken. Who can but prophesy. There in that brief text, the lion roaring 
is equated with the Lord God Himself speaking, prophesying, preaching. And when the Lord has spoken through Christ in His preached word, and that word goeth forth out of His mouth, that word always accomplishes its purpose and never returns to Him void. You know that, don't you, beloved? Has the preaching of the gospel ever been defeated? Has the white horse as it ran through time and history ever been defeated? Most certainly not. It has been victorious through all time. See, it's victorious running with me beginning in the Old Testament. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin and death, what did God do? God himself published that gospel in Genesis 3 verse 15. The one coming through the loins of the woman would defeat and bruise and crush the head of the serpent. God was pleased to reveal his gospel at that time in that way. And then God was pleased to continue revealing more of that gospel and that beautiful gospel saviour through his ordained preachers from there on. Through Enoch, they tried to kill him, but they weren't successful, were they? God translated Enoch in safety. Through Noah, who not only built the ark, but was the preacher of righteousness, and through all those prophets in Old Testament Scripture, so that the one coming would be the Lion of Judah, would be the Rose of Sharon, would be the Lily of the Valley, would be Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, would be by the end of the Old Testament, the Son, S-U-N, Son of Righteousness who arises with healing in his wings. And most importantly, he would be the servant of Jehovah, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that exalted one from lowly Bethlehem, the virgin's child, pure and free from all sin, that one who would bear our sins on the cross. That's the gospel as it develops over time, as, as its revelation is set forth more richly over time, and that happened unstoppably. This horse ran throughout the Old Testament. It ran also throughout the New Testament. Catechism season will begin soon, children. And if you're going to study New Testament history, be mindful of the Acts of the Apostles and how the church grew and grew how the church comprised not only then of the Jews but of the Gentiles. Gentiles were brought in through what? What means? The preaching of the apostles, the evangelists, and the missionaries. As many as were ordained to eternal life 
believed, were brought into the church, were saved by Jesus Christ. And the horse continued to run, the white horse. God was at work throughout time and history, also in the Middle Ages, when it was hard to see where the church was. This horse still ran, and that became very clear and evident in the time of the Reformation when God raised the, an abundance of gospel preachers. Like stars in the sky on a clear night that's before us, lots and lots of preachers, bright gospel preachers, great gospel preachers and stars like John Calvin and Martin Luther, but also lesser stars and lesser preachers whom God was pleased to use to continue the running of the white horse. And that horse continues to run today and run victoriously. How victoriously? In two ways. In the first place, as we said, this horse is unstoppable. Great nations have risen, have come and gone. Great rulers also have come and gone. Great institutions of men have come and gone over time and history. But this horse continues to run. The preaching of the gospel continues even now on the face of this earth. It is victorious. First of all, in that way, it is unstoppable. And secondly, it is victorious as to its result. It is victorious both from an individual and corporate point of view in terms of its result. From an individual viewpoint, Wherever the gospel is preached, there is victory. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 when he describes the preaching of the gospel as the sweet savour of Christ. When the gospel is preached to God's chosen people, there is victory in this way. It is a sweet savour of life unto life. The gospel heals. The gospel works repentance. The gospel converts. The gospel saves. The gospel comforts. The gospel warns. The gospel sanctifies. And when the word of God comes to the reprobate, there is also victory. This way, in that it is a sweet savour of death unto death. Doing also the will and counsel of God. And we still ourselves, don't we, when we see this happening also in our midst. There is victory in the preaching of the gospel from an individual viewpoint and from a corporate viewpoint, there is victory as well. How so? 
when the gospel is preached in the midst of the church of Jesus Christ, the pillars of the strongholds of Satan are shaken, they crumble, and God's elect captives are brought in. They are freed from sin and slavery, the darkness of sin unto light and life with God. And the church of Jesus Christ, the body and bride of Christ, the kingdom of God is built up, grows from strength to strength. As she is gathered, as she is defended, as she is preserved through the means of gospel preaching. People of God here in Georgetown, are you not thankful for the preaching of the gospel? I've come back after 15 years being absent from you. How you have grown. You have grown numerically, that's evident. And I'm sure you know for yourself too that you have grown spiritually. That, beloved, is the result, the victorious result of the white horse and its rider running and galloping in your midst from Lord's Day to Lord's Day here in this place. Are you not thankful for it? We ought to be. We ought to be astounded by and thankful for the running of the white horse impacting us, saving us, sanctifying us and our children, as indicated by the beast with the face of a lion who draws our attention with a noise of thunder in the text and calls out to us, Come and see! See this white horse and its rider at work! Are we not thankful for it? Then I say, let's show it, and show it in three ways. First of all, by a thankful reception of it. Not a rejection of it, as sadly has been happening throughout our denomination as much lately in the past few years. As the Apostle Peter reminds us, don't reject the word. Don't come to church with malice. Don't come to church with guile. Don't come to church with hypocrisy. Don't come to church with envies and evil speakings. Lay all these things aside and desire the sincere milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby. In other words, the Apostle Peter is telling us under inspiration don't come to church with a bad attitude, with hatred, guile, pretense, and evil in your heart and expect God to bless. Don't. Don't reject the word. But rather, be ready, desirous, as a young babe, desiring the milk of its mother. Show it by a thankful reception. And that thankful reception begins on Saturday night with a thankful 
preparedness and preparation. Don't crowd out our life on Saturday night with activity, activity, and activity, but rather go to bed early and sleep early that you may have a good night of rest, anticipating eagerly the day of rest, the festal day, the joyous day of Jesus Christ, Sunday. Prepare to receive the gospel and then, and then let that continue with an attentive hearing of the gospel as it is preached, giving thought to that which is brought up in the preaching, giving diligent thought, and then finally following through with application in your own heart and life. That's how we, thank, we, are, we show our thankfulness in the first place for the rider of the white horse and the white horse, by a thankful reception of it. Secondly, by a thankful witness of it. And that thankful witness must begin in our own personal lives within the four walls of our home. Personally and as a family. That thankful witness begins with a loving Relate a loving relationship between husband and wife, not a fighting, not an indifference between the two of them, but living in love with one another and living in love with our children and siblings living in love with one another, even the love of Jesus Christ. And then that witness, that thankful witness from there, naturally goes out of the doors of the home into the world, into school, into the workplace, into the grocery stores, into wherever we are called to go in order to live on this earth. Let us be ready, beloved, to give a reason for the hope that we have within us with meekness and fear. So thankful witness, thankful reception, and finally, thankful support. How do we show thankful support for the white horse and its rider? Support your pastor and your preacher. Support him continually. Support him with your prayers. Support him with your actions in your giving. Support him in, by your speech. Encourage him in his ministry. And this too, in our day and age, in, in our denomination, encourage also young men to consider the high calling of the gospel ministry so that this white horse and its rider might continue to run and gallop even within our churches and mission fields, and bring glory to the name of our God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the word that thou dost give us in thy love. Bless that word. And cause us, O Lord, to be 
as thy people living on this earth, living in the light of that word, so that the truths set forth in Scripture are a reality within our mind and heart and show forth as reality in our lives daily. Hear and bless us and forgive our sins. For Jesus' sake, amen.